We're going to kick off a new series today called First Love, and I've been really excited to preach this series because I believe it's going to help stir in us a passion to serve God like never before, and we're going to start with a message called True Value. If you have your Bible today, you can go to Judges chapter 2 and verses 6 through 10 is where we're going to kick things off today. And as you're finding Judges chapter 2, I just want to give you a little bit of the backstory so you can know what's going on in Judges chapter 2, what happened before to make this particular scene uh, happen. So in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, Joshua was leading the children of Israel and he had led them through a series of battles. He had led them through all sorts of different challenges and God had proven himself faithful all the way. And their end goal was to get to a place that God had promised them, their promised land. And the people of God finally walked into the promised land and all of the battles had been won. And now Joshua in chapter 24 was the leader of the people of Israel and he's giving this speech and he's wanting to remind them of where they came from. He's wanting to remind them of the past and all the things that they've gone through. And he's basically telling them, if you want to go backwards and you want to serve the gods of the land of Egypt in which we came out of, that's your prerogative. But he makes a bold statement, and you may have heard this statement before, where in verse 15 he says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And the Bible doesn't describe this necessarily, but I would imagine as he's given this speech to an entire nation of people, and they're all hearing this, I would imagine that as Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I bet there was like a concerted like, yeah, us too, right? I mean, because that's just such a powerful, motivating moment. Everyone was just so thankful for what God had done. And in that moment, could you just imagine everyone being excited and celebrating? Now they're divvying up the land, all the 12 tribes of Israel. Joshua said, you guys go over here. This tribe goes over here. This tribe goes in this direction. And, and then as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And yeah, I imagine that was the feeling that day when Joshua gave that speech. But then in Judges, we see what happened at the conclusion of that story. Judges chapter 2, let's start reading in verse 6. Now when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and, the days, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua... The son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age of 110 years old. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gaish. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. This scripture has always bothered me. It's always grieved me. Because as I read this and I think about all the great things that God did throughout those generations, they were telling stories of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. They were telling stories of the Red Sea being parted and Pharaoh's army being drowned and God miraculously saving and delivering His people. They were talking about how they had to eat manna for 40, day, for 40 years in the, in the wilderness and, and how God provided for them and took care of them. They were telling stories about how there were giants in the land and how God overcame them. They were telling stories about how the walls of Jericho fell down. They were telling these stories about what all God had done, and somehow there was a disconnect. 
at some point. Because there arose a generation after all those people who had had those experiences, all those people who had heard those stories, all those people who had lived that, there arose a generation after all of that. Could you imagine? After all of that, a generation rises up that does not know the Lord? That just doesn't make sense to me. So there was a disconnect between the speech and Judges chapter 2. Between Joshua 24, 15 and everyone shouting, between that and Judges chapter 2, verse 10, a generation rising up after them that didn't know the Lord, there was a disconnect. And the Bible doesn't say what the disconnect was. So we're just left to kind of guess at what happened. But I would guess that probably what happened was that people got comfortable and complacent and what God had done for them was great and they appreciated it and they were thankful for it, but they stopped serving God with the passion that they had before. Over in Luke chapter 17, we see this same kind of idea reiterated in the life of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 11, Scripture says this, On the way to Jerusalem, He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as He entered a village, He was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when He saw them, He said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest." And as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. It's the same kind of idea of what happened in Judges 2. God does something miraculous. He does something powerful, but the majority missed it. The majority missed it because a generation rose up that did not know the Lord. The majority missed it because God healed 10 lepers and only one out of the 10 returned to actually say, thank you, God, and were in awe of what He had done. Because truly valuing Christ is being passionately devoted beyond how He can change my current circumstance. So many of us are only interested in what God can do for our current circumstances. And that's about as far as our devotion and our passion and our service and our love for Him extends. Because we all want God to change our circumstances, if we're honest. I mean, every one of us has something that we believe that we would like God to intervene, whether that be a financial situation, a relational situation, something to do with a family member, something to do with some challenge at work, something to do with uh, the, 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 the culture that we live in or the temperature of the country in which we live socially and uh, economically or something to do with another person that we care about. We all are asking God to intervene. We're all hoping God does something that only He can do to kind of change the circumstance because all of us will agree none of our circumstances are perfect, right? We all have something that we're looking for. Maybe there's something physically that we're asking God to change in us. Maybe there's some sort of diagnosis or some sort of health challenge. Whatever the case may be, people lean into God and ask God to change their circumstances, their temporal circumstances here on the earth. We all ask God for those types of things. And honestly, we, we can and we should because God cares about those things. So don't misunderstand me today. God cares about those circumstances that you're finding yourself in, the tough stuff. 
God cares about those challenges. And sometimes we do see God supernaturally intervene and provide opportunity or a way or a solution or a resolution to something that you look back and you go, wow, only God could have intervened and turned this thing around that way. Thank you, God, for doing that. And we're blown away by that. But valuing Christ stems beyond what He can do to change my circumstance. Because if all I do is serve God and I'm only devoted to Him because of what He does to change my circumstances here on the earth, then I have a limited love towards God. And I'll have a limited passion. And you want me to tell you where your passion will run out? When you ask God to do something and it doesn't work out the way you wanted it to work out. All of a sudden you'll get disappointed. All of a sudden you get frustrated. You'll wonder, where is God? because God's not doing what I want, when I want, how I want. And people began to run out of steam. They began to run out of passion for serving God because they're not truly valuing Christ because they've missed it. And the majority, as we can see through these two stories, the majority missed it. The majority missed it when it came to all the great things God had done, all the miracles He had performed to lead these people out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery and captivity generations born into slavery had now been set free for the very first time in their lives. And God provided for them, took care of them every step of the way. When it looked hopeless, God made a way in crazy circumstances that were 100% supernatural. But it wasn't enough to keep people's hearts fixated on the Lord because there arose a generation that didn't know God. They didn't value him. So there was a disconnect. There was a disconnect with the lepers. Think about leprosy for a minute. I mean, we don't really hear about that a lot in our day and age because thankfully there are uh, things that they can do to actually treat and help cure it. But back in this time, it was like having something worse than COVID, right? I mean, like leprosy was don't even come near, you lose your job, you lose your family, you have to go live now with all these lepers, separated from society, the things you used to enjoy, you don't get to enjoy because it's so highly contagious, your body parts literally begin to rot off, your body begins to rot. These people have been excommunicated from society, and here Jesus comes walking into town, and these guys meet him, and they're standing a far distance off because they had to walk around and, and shout out unclean everywhere they went. They had to uh, uh, signify that they were, they were coming down a road because they were that contagious, and people were that afraid of leprosy. And they asked Jesus to have mercy on them. And then Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they're on their way, being obedient to the command of Jesus, they realize they're healed. And they're like, oh, wow, I'm healed. And out of 10 lepers that were healed, only one, only one thought it was worth going back and praising God and saying thank you over? Only one person truly valued Christ in that moment? What were the other nine thinking, I wonder? Like, were they just walking along and all of a sudden they realize they're healed and then they go, yeah, that was cool, uh, whatever. Like, what, what did they do? Were they just, they just happy to be able to get back to life as normal? Were they maybe more excited about going back and, and, and showing their friends that they were healed and showing them that, look, I don't have leprosy any longer. We can hang out now. Is, were, that, were they more concerned with that? I mean, what were they more concerned with in that moment? One of them got it. One of them understood what had just happened and went back to the source and said, wow, I, I got to worship you. Thank you. And then Jesus did something else in him. I, I don't know exactly what that was. There's, 
different interpretations of what that could have meant when Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Some translations say whole. Maybe the guy had like a missing finger or rotted parts of his flesh that maybe grew back. I, I don't know what that means, but something happened in that leper that came back that didn't happen to the rest. And he wasn't coming back seeking that. It was just something had changed in him. He was passionate. He was excited. You see, fixing marriages and receiving physical healing, being blessed and favored are all good things. And we can ask God to do those things. And folks, listen, God does do those things. So thank you, God, for doing those things. But how you value Christ now affects how others will value Christ later. How you value Christ now will affect how others value Christ later. In other words, our value that we place on Christ is bigger than you and me because the gospel moving forward to the next generation is at stake. The gospel being carried forth in your family, in, in, in your sphere of influence, the way you live your life, the value you place on Christ. Because it's one thing to tell people, Jesus is important to me, and it's another thing to live out Christ being valuable and important. Amen? We can say all the right things. We can immerse people in all the right cultures. We can put them in all the right settings. We can put them in the Christian schools. We can play VeggieTales for the kids every day. We can play the Christian music. We can have the Bible sitting on the coffee table. But can I tell you that living out the value of Christ is more important than just surrounding yourself with Christian cultural things? Because how you value Christ now is going to impact how others value Christ later. If we don't begin to truly see the worth and value of Jesus, my fear is that we run the risk of there being a generation come up after us that does not know the Lord, that does not value Christ. A generation that heard about His miracles, maybe even experienced some of God's intervention, but yet they didn't see the value to to, to follow Him. They didn't see the value to worship Him. They didn't see the value to continue on because Christ seemed like an afterthought. And the pressure is going to increasingly mount on people to begin to follow after their own desires, to follow after their own flesh, to do whatever they want to do, to do whatever makes them happy. That's the mantra of the world. And the world is becoming more and more focused on self and less and less focused on God. And if the enemy can get us blinded, get us off track, get us focused on ourselves. And, and all we're thinking about at that point is just retiring well, having a nice nest egg, you know, living life to the fullest, experiencing all the wonderful things that this life has to offer. And if that becomes our aim and our goal and our focus, and we're not first valuing Christ, we are running the risk of our faith not being passed down to that next generation because these people experienced the hand of God in a powerful way, and they didn't get it. The majority missed it, because how we value Christ now, today, right now, in this moment, is going to impact. It's going to affect in some way, shape, or form your children. It's going to some way, shape, or form affect your neighbors, your grandkids, your, your nieces and nephews, your, your co-workers. It's going to impact how others value Christ, because are they seeing the value of Christ being lived out in your daily life right now. And your value of Christ has to stem beyond 
what He can do for you. Let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and as you're turning over to 2 Timothy, just remember that Paul, the apostle, wrote this letter to Timothy to encourage him. Timothy was a young elder, and as Timothy was in charge of this area in Ephesus, he was uh, faced with a lot of intimidation. He was faced with a lot of uh, pressures, and he's newer to leadership. He's a young guy, and he's facing pressure both from the church and church leaders, and he's also facing pressure from society in general and the temptations that society is throwing at him. So this guy's got pressure from all directions, inside the walls of the family of faith and then outside in everyday day-to-day life. This guy's just really under a ton of pressure, and Paul's trying to encourage him. But get this, Paul writes Timothy a letter of encouragement while Paul is in prison. He's in prison writing another person a letter of encouragement. And this is what Paul says to Timothy. Verse 3, let's start there, chapter 1, 2 Timothy. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. So let's stop right there. See, Paul is praying for Timothy. But where does Paul also draw this connection with Timothy from? He says, hey, I serve God who also my ancestors served. He's making a family connection. He's making a legacy connection. And he says, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Verse 4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. He says, Timothy, there's something in you from your ancestors. Remember, he had said, I thank God for my ancestors. I thank God for the legacy, how they've passed down the value of serving God. He said, and you have that too. He's trying to draw a parallel here to encourage Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you have people who have invested in you too. There's a sincere, genuine faith that was in your grandmother. He calls to mind the faith of his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. And then Paul says something interesting. He said, I am convinced. Some translations say, I am persuaded it is in you also. In other words, I see something in you, Timothy, that you're missing out on that you don't see yourself. What is Paul doing here? Paul, the older generation, the father figure, the one who has fought the good fight of faith, he is seeing value in the younger, the next generation, and he's wanting to influence and impact them to see the value that he has for following Jesus. And he's wanting that to be stirred up in Timothy. He's wanting Timothy to be able to navigate the challenges of his day, and he's mentoring him. He's speaking life into him. And that's what those of us who have been given this gift of grace, this gift that we are followers of Christ and we have been made new and we're Jesus followers, we should be imparting and seeking out those who need to hear this message, those who are that next generation, those who are going to outlive us, those who we've been given the opportunity to influence, that we can speak life into them, that we can pray for them. Remember, he said, I'm praying for you, Timothy. I I know it's been difficult. I've been reminded of your tears, but I want to see you. I I have a heart to want to, to, to see you, to be with you, to pray for you. I've been praying for you night and day, man. And I'm serving God faithfully. And you need to serve God faithfully too because you've got a legacy of faith also. 
It was in your grandmother. It was in your mother. I'm convinced it's in you too. Verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He says, Tim, you've got a gift. There's a gift on the inside of you. Don't you remember when I prayed for you? I laid my hands on you. I affirmed that gift. I said, you've got a gift. I prayed for you. I laid my hands on you. Something was stirred in you, a passion, a value to serve the Lord. He said, it's in there. And I'm reminding you to stir up the gift of God. He puts the responsibility back on to Timothy to stir up the gift. Because a lot of times when we began to get discouraged, when we began to be afraid, we want somebody to come and lay their hands on us again, like, come pray for me, like, do that thing, you know, again, that you prayed for me and it made me feel better. And Paul's saying, I'm in prison. <laughs> I'm not, it's not like I could just say, hey, I could hop on a camel and I'll be there in a couple of weeks and pray for you. No, he, he said, I, you have to do this, but it's in you. The goods are there. I'm convinced it was in there. You've got a legacy, you've got a heritage, and you've got a gift. Don't you remember when I laid my hands on you? So you stir it up. And then he tells them this. For God, verse 7, gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought to life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. This is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he has been able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Verse 13, he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He's letting him know, remember the gospel, Timothy. He reminds him of the gospel. He reminds him of suffering also. He said, hey, I'm suffering for Christ too. I know it's difficult for you, but that fear, that intimidation, it's not from God. God doesn't give you a spirit of fear, but instead He gives you this power to be able to overcome, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit. The greater is He who is in you than he that's in the world. He gives you a spirit of love so that way you can still love your enemies and still do good to those who want to persecute you and see you fail. And he said, a sound mind, where you can be rational, where you can be self-controlled, where you, you, you don't allow your imagination to wander, but you can actually be rooted and grounded throughout this challenge you're facing. Because Paul says, I too am in chains, man, I'm, I'm a prisoner. And he tells Timothy to suffer well. Like, when's the last time you ever heard a sermon on suffering well? Like, we don't like to talk about suffering well, but suffering is all throughout the New Testament. There are challenges that we go through for the sake of Christ, and we are to suffer well, remembering where our hope comes from. That's why Paul told Timothy, you've got it in you. Now, don't think anything bad is just going to uh, always just avoid you, and you're always just going to have this life of ease. No, there's suffering attached to it, and when those times come, suffer well and remember to stay anchored. Don't get intimidated. Don't sway to the right or to the left. Stay focused. He said, follow the pattern of the sound teaching that I've given you. Paul tells him, follow the pattern of my life. You've seen me live this thing out. 
In other words, how I have valued Christ should affect how you value Christ. You see this. You've heard this. How you saw your grandmother value Christ should affect how you value Christ. How you saw your mother value Christ should affect how you value Christ. And now you're in a position where others are being influenced and impacted by the way you value Christ. So draw upon those things that God has invested in you and put in you from your family heritage that I've invested in you, that the Holy Spirit has deposited in you. There are things there that you need to remember and you need to continue to move forward because this generation that's coming up The enemy would love to put so much pressure and intimidation on them to remain silent and to not follow the Lord because it'd just be easier to go with the flow and do what everybody else is doing. To live countercultural these days and to be a voice that's speaking something different other than what the majority is speaking is becoming more and more hostile in our world. When someone stands up for something different than what the majority says, it's almost like they just get eaten alive and destroyed. It doesn't even matter. It's like they're not allowed to have a different opinion than the voice of the majority. And anytime anyone speaks up, it's becoming increasingly more uh, uh, louder and, and, and harsher responses and more dangerous and more threatening responses to where people's lives are being turned upside down because of things they say or don't say. Because sometimes even not saying something will still cause people to just hate and throw all sorts of anger and and all sorts of evil your direction. And this next generation, man, they've, they've got a challenge ahead of them. How are we teaching them to value Christ so that they can stand in the face of opposition and still love their neighbor? So that they can still have the power of God in them to still speak the truth and the boldness of the Holy Spirit? That they can still have a sound mind and not let their emotions get carried away? to where they can still speak the truth and love, to where they can still love those who would persecute them? Are are we equipping them for that? Are we preparing them for that? Because that's what's happening, and that's what they're going to be raised up in, and that's what's coming their direction. So it's great that you're solid in your faith if you're a Christ follower. It's great that you can stand on your own two feet and stand for the gospel, but are you valuing Christ in such a way that the next generation is seeing that it matters enough to stand for? Is the next generation, those who are in your care, whether it be a family member or a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, are you valuing Christ in such a way that it's showing them something different? Maybe they haven't received Christ yet, but they still see something different, and it's making an impact. Are they seeing that value? Are, they, are you guarding the good deposit? Paul told Timothy to serve God, to share your family faith. He said, there's a sincere faith that's instilled in you. He told him to stir up the gift. He told him, don't be intimidated by the world. Don't be ashamed of your faith. Don't feel alone. Suffer well. He says, it's worth it. Follow the good pattern set before you. Guard the good deposit from corruption. Are are we investing that type of value? Are we showing that type of thing to the next generation? Because this is how we impart value to the next generation. So my question for us is that how are, we li- how, are, how are we doing living these things out? How are we doing modeling these things? How are we doing talking about these things? Because how you value Christ now affects how others value Christ later. 
One of the things that we have to understand is the Bible talks repeatedly about stirring up things, stirring up the gifts, stirring one another up, spurring one another on, sharpening one another on. There's this different idea of, of, of communicating how we want to stir up the gift on, in us and in other people so that they value the Lord, lest we become like Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, where there arrives a generation after all those good old folks that loved the Lord, all those good folks that saw His miracles, all those good folks that experienced the hand of God moving, there arose a generation right after them that didn't know the Lord. Or that Jesus touches and heals ten lepers and nine of them just go on with their lives and only one of them stops and turns around and goes back to honor and thank the Lord for what He had done and to worship Him because He saw something valuable. Everyone else was so focused on themselves and only one was focused on the one who actually gave the gift and thought He was worthy of worship. Everyone else just was happy that they could go back to normal. Where, are we that one? Are we that one that's returning or are we the nine that, that are taking it for granted? Because if we keep taking it for granted, there will be a generation rise up that does not know the Lord. So we must understand how we value Christ now affects how others value Christ later. And we need to stir our passion for valuing Christ and we need to stir others up as well. It's part of our role. We need to stir ourselves up and stir others up. Here's a great way to do that. Hang out with somebody whose love for Jesus intimidates you a little bit and challenges you. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody that you went, you're like, man, that person really loves Jesus. Instead of you keeping a distance from that person and admiring them from afar off, why don't you invite them out to lunch sometime? Find out where their favorite restaurant is, take them out to eat, and just hang out with them. Because that is contagious, man. That, that is infectious in a good way. To where when you begin to hang out with people who their love for Jesus challenges you, man, there's a guy in my life that when I was younger, I shared this a few weeks ago. His name was Randy Gudo. He was a youth pastor. I, I, he only influenced my life for about six months directly, and I had a relationship with him before I actually became a youth pastor. I was 18 years old, and I, I heard about this guy, and his church was 45 minutes away from where I lived, and I had a gas guzzler of a car, and I would drive to go hang out with Randy and be with that youth group and hang out with that youth pastor because the way he loved Jesus challenged me. It challenged me greatly, and it stretched me. It moved me beyond what was comfortable. And being, just being around him and some of the things he would do and some of the boldness that he would, he would just talk to people about the Lord with, I was just like, man, it challenged me, but it also rubbed off on me. I loved being around him, but being around him sometimes made me question whether or not I was even a Christian. <laughs> you ever been around somebody like that? Like you're hanging out with somebody you're like, man, I don't even know if I'm saved right now because this person, wow, they really love Jesus. I thought I loved Jesus, but this person, wow, it inspired me and it encouraged me and it strengthened me. There's another guy in my life that uh, the Lord sent a number of years later, a guy by the name of Steve Christner, who's a missionary now in the UK, and he's a friend of mine. And the way Steve loves Jesus, just when you see it on his face, he has like this permanent smile like plastered on his face. And I'm like, does Steve ever have a bad day? You know, like that guy? I'm sure you know somebody like that. And you're like, man, he's just always just so filled with joy and he's always filled with compassion and just loves the Lord in a way that 
It challenges me. It intimidates me. And I love just being with that guy. I love just hanging out with him, the way that he loves Jesus, the way he loves other people. And not everybody that challenges you with the way that they love Jesus, you're going to be able to have direct access to. There are a number of speakers, a number of teachers, a number of authors that they, uh, the way they love Jesus challenges me. And I've never met these people in person before, but I've read their books. I've listened to their sermons. Have any of you guys ever heard of Francis Chan before? The way Francis Chan loves Jesus, it challenges me. Like, I don't agree with all of his theology, but I don't care. Like, the way he loves Jesus challenges me. Have you ever heard of David Platt before? Have you ever heard that name? That man can't get up in the pulpit without crying because he loves Jesus. And I'm, he preaches like this the whole time. And it just makes me want to cry because I'm like, wow, I, I, that dude loves Jesus. He loves the Word. He, he's treating it as holy. And, and the way that he talks about Jesus, you're like, he's not talking about someone like he read about them in a book and he's just giving you facts and figures. No, he actually knows Jesus, and he speaks about him with such a deep conviction and such a deep passion. And when I read those types of uh, books, like uh, the the book Radical by David Platt, or uh, when I read something like that, or when I listen to someone teach like that, man, it's infectious. Spend time with people who love Jesus in a way that it challenges you. Um, The way they love Jesus, the way they're devoted, the way they're radically devoted, the way they, 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 they are serving him man, stir up the passion for following and serving Jesus. And I'm going to give you three biblical ways to stir yourself and others up. The first one is worship. I want to talk to you about worship for just a second. Over in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but wise. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for the Lord to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. He's saying here there's, there's something too that's being filled with the Spirit through singing songs. I mean, singing songs is an element of worship. It's not worship totally, but it is an element that stirs us emotionally. Have you ever just like heard a song or something and man, it just really stirs something in you? Uh, there are so many songs that I, I can, just, the, the, the song, How Deep the Father's Love, when I hear that song, it stirs my heart, it stirs my affections and my passion for the Lord. Uh, there will be a song that may, uh, we may sing here at church, and it just stirs my affections and my passion for the Lord. I, I need to be a person who's worshiping, a person who's singing songs and psalms. Go through the book of Psalms and, 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 and read those and let them stir things in your heart for the Lord because He wants our affections and our passion and our value to be on Him. Worship is a way that we do that and can be filled and encourage one another with the Word. Of course, we want to hide the Word in our heart, as Psalm 119 and 11 says, that we might not sin against God. We want to hide that Word. We want to invest the Word of God in our heart. Are we investing the Word in our heart? Because I'll tell you something powerful about the Scriptures. When we commit Scripture to memory, when we read the Word of God, when we meditate on Scripture, it begins to sink somewhere deep in us that it comes out of us 
at the times when we weren't even thinking about it. You'll be in a conversation with someone, and a friend or a coworker will be sharing challenges that they have, and all of a sudden the Scripture will come to mind, and you'll begin to speak that Scripture, that Word of God. Where did that come from? It came from the well of the investment you've made, and the Holy Spirit brought those things up at the right time when they were needed. So you could give that word of encouragement or that word of, of, of correction or challenge or warning. Those things come out of that investment, that valuing Christ in a way where, yes, I'm worshiping Him, so I'm encouraged, but I'm also investing in the Word so I can know more about who He is. And then those things begin to come out of me at those moments where it will glorify and honor God. And then work, doing things, having our, getting our hands dirty. I, I'll tell you what, serving the Lord with others is an awesome way to stir up and keep that value fire stoked, that value in Christ fire stoked. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 says we need to spur one another on to good works. We need to make sure we're encouraging one another to actually do good works, like good works that are going to glorify God and honor God and point people to Jesus. And when we do those things, when we're worshiping, when we're keeping our heart and our affection and our emotions and our thoughts set on the Lord, and we have our, our, our minds wrapped up in the Word and our minds are being renewed by the power of the Word, and when we're actually living this thing out and we're actually doing tangible, practical things to make a difference and to impact the kingdom of God, it begins to keep my heart stirred and focused. It, get, it, it, it stirs my value, my affections towards the Lord. And then it's like I'm actually living this thing out. I'm actually doing the things that are honoring and glorifying God with my life, and I'm loving Him in the process more and more. Because it should be said of us, that the longer we are walking with the Lord, the more we should love God. I mean, that should just be a natural thing. The longer we walk with the Lord. But, but so often it seems that the longer people claim to be Christian and walk with the Lord, that if we're not growing in worship, if we're not growing in the Word, if we're not growing in serving other people and, and, and loving people in, in practical tangible ways and showing them Jesus and showing them and teaching them and sharing with them the gospel, if we get lax in those things, then we just kind of coast. We just kind of go through the motions. We just kind of do whatever and we keep showing up for church, right? I mean, we keep showing up for uh, all of the right things and we know how to say the right things. It's like we become professional Christians and we know when to stand up, when to sit down. We know when to say amen. We know, you know, how to be a good boy or girl in church. And we learn all the right cues. But our heart just begins to drift. Our heart begins to drift. It becomes more about just showing up and checking a box. And God is not interested in that. You see, we could just keep checking a box over and over again. And if our heart's done, and if we're not truly valuing Jesus, if we're not valuing him for more than just what he's done and we're running the risk of being like the church of ephesus in revelation chapter 2 where jesus said you're doing a lot of good things you got good doctrine you're calling out false teachers you're hanging closely to the truth but i have this one thing against you you've forgotten your first love and he said return repent return repent return to that first love. Re return to that place where you first stumbled on the treasure in the field. Return to that place where you were first in awe of Jesus and what he's done. Be stirred. Be, be, be stoked. Stir up the gift of God on the inside of you 
remember not only what he's done, but who he is and how he's worthy of your complete and total devotion for your sake and for those around you because your life is speaking in eternity either by your action or your inaction because how you value Christ now affects how others will value Christ later. We have a responsibility and he's worth it and he's good but we have a responsibility church and that's to stir up the gift of God, to stir up the good deposit. Some of you, you, you you've, you've had a good deposit made in you. Some of you have had really good deposits made in you. Don't assume. Don't just cross your fingers. Well, I hope, hope that the gospel keeps getting spread. No, no. Live with a greater purpose. Live intentionally. Because how you value Christ now is going to affect how others that are in your sphere of influence will value Christ later. How important is their eternity to you? How important is this message? How, how important is living this thing out every single day? It has to span beyond the importance of a Sunday morning. It has to span beyond the importance of Easter and Christmas and church picnics and all those things. The value you place on Christ, it, it, it is speaking to the next generation. The value we place on Christ, how, how valuable is he to you? I pray that today that the Holy Spirit will just search our hearts and bring to our mind and to our remembrance the things that we need to see, the things we need to be made aware of, that we could have our eyes opened and, and see the beauty of Jesus in such a way that our natural response would be to live a life completely sold out, completely devoted, real, authentic, not perfect, I get it, <laughs> but sold out, real, authentic passion, sincere passion for following Jesus. So Lord, help us do this because we need you. You are good. You are everything we need. We honor you today in this place. We honor you, Lord, as we're worshiping you, whether we're gathering here in the room or online and we just want to be at a place where we see that value of the treasure in the field, where we see the worth of Christ in such a way that we would be stirred. And when we become apathetic, Lord, let us repent. When we become distracted, let us repent. When we become uh, uh, people who, who, who are swaying and, 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 and who are becoming calloused over, because we're ignoring our first love, Lord, may we be brought to a place of repentance. May we be brought to a place of, of restoration, of seeing, Lord, the beauty of who you are and what you've done and how good you are. And let us completely give you everything because you're worth it. In Jesus' name, amen.